Are you one of the three quarters of people struggling with a fear or anxiety around public speaking? Do you wish you could communicate more effectively, develop more meaningful relationships, grow your business and access greater opportunities? Welcome to Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. In this series, I'll draw on my own experience from terrified teenager to UK award-winning speaker and communications coach, as well as speaking to a number of special guests, all with one object in mind, to help you communicate more effectively. Ready to grow? Let's get started. Do you hear more than one voice? Do they give you more than one choice? Do they take away all your dreams? So that nothing is quite as it seems And so I've been there before And I know what you're looking for And I can try to explain If it takes forever and a day But it all comes down to this Use your heart and you will never miss And when you find that you're troubled so Remember that there's always hope Hello everybody, welcome to this latest episode of the Simon Speaks podcast and this episode is one that I have greatly looked forward to and one that I'm delighted to bring to you now. I'm talking to a good friend of mine who I've known for more years than I dare to mention because it'll probably reveal both of our ages and we don't want to do that. I'm talking to Ryan Mitchell-Smith, who's a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist from Wakefield. Uh, He writes a variety of music, jazzy, bluesy, pop, a bit of electronic, but uh, they're all catchy. And he writes everything himself, recording technology. He's a bit of a, a genius when it comes to that. And he also has a front band, Shrewd, who, of which he is the front man and writes a lot of the, uh, the lyrics and also features with the extremely talented Ruby McIntosh. So you've been around the Wakefield music scene for quite a while. And uh, I'm thrilled to talk to you about some of your music, but also how you use it as a coping mechanism for some of the, the health challenges that you've been through around. So if you just take some time, welcome, first of all. Uh, introduce yourself to everyone and give us a bit of your background and your love of music if you would. I certainly will. It's a pleasure, first of all, to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, I suppose the first thing to begin with is why music, essentially, for me. Uh, my dad was a musician uh, and he was a very big personality. He had a blues band and did very, very well with it. So it was a bit of an icon to me as I was growing up. And I sort of watched him use music to help him get through the hard parts of his life. So it was second nature for me to follow that path. Um, Once I got to being able to make my own sort of career out of it and and make my own big decisions, um, first of all, I went to uh, college and failed the entry exam by one mark. And they had, I know, and the head of the course gave me a chance anyway, which was really, really great. 
and basically I went through two years of doing a BTEC there and actually I was one of only four people that passed <laughs> because it was a lot of people just went to have a, have a good time basically. Um, but after that, I then went off to um, essentially go and spread my wings down in Derby uh, at university down there. Uh, but that was after looking after my mum for a year because my dad passed away in that gap between going to university. And I deliberately had decided Derby is for me. I want to go to Derby. It's the perfect course. Um, but when my dad passed away, I thought, no, I've got some responsibilities. I'm going to look after my mum for a year and just make sure everything at home is OK. Um, so then I went to Derby and I, I studied there for three years. But because my dad hadn't got the chance to go to university, I ended up treating it like a crystal ball. And I was uh, second, sorry, joint second person to get a first class honours degree at that particular course, which was um, had been running for 15 years. So I really, really went for it. And then ever since then, I sort of springboarded forward and just went, right, I, I, I know I've found my thing. Um, and then eventually just got mixed into wanting to help people. So that's when mine and your paths crossed, when I went to Osset and had the very unique position of working as a, a music technician and getting to teach people without having to tell them off. It was great. <laughs> so that's where the, the love of music all came from. That's the, the very fast journey into, into getting just before everything kind of went a bit sideways. Mm. Well, no, absolutely. And, and obviously it was it was at Osset when I was a student there where you kindled my love of music because I was a budding young pianist at the time and uh, enjoyed a bit of composition, enjoyed a bit of songwriting, tried to express myself and, and was wrestling with it. And uh, I still remember those hours that you selflessly gave up after school to help me record what was a very long and, and not very meaningful song at the time I seem to remember <laughs> because I, I think I was trying to write the new, the new Man in the Mirror, but if you're going to write a song that's five, six minutes long, it's got to be worth something. So oh, right. I remember the time more than the song is, is what I'm trying to, yes. trying to express. Um, tell me a little bit about your musical influences. So if you were to pin yourself down to a few musicians or bands or artists that you really draw from, where would you go? Um, instantly, we're talking blues background so it was Stevie Ray Vaughan then I went very funky and went sort of Stevie Wonder and then as time progressed we're talking John Mayer, Dave Matthews Band, I know right lots of singer-songwriters, Tracy Chapman, um, just loads of, of stuff like that but also I got a bit of a thing for acid jazz and, and really funky stuff like Incognito and Jamiroquai and that's why now um, when I play bass, it's, it's very, very funky. But then when I pick up a guitar, it can be very heartfelt and emotional. So it means I've got lots of different colours to my palette, which is really nice. But we're talking people like Omar, um, stuff that's very, very layered. So I, I go from liking really simple stuff that's heart on your sleeve stuff to massively layered stuff like Matthew Herbert and things like that that have got hundreds of sounds happening at the same time. Um, and one particular artist that really got me at college was a guy called that not many people are aware of called Donald Fagan, who wrote a song called Ruby Baby. And the harmonies in that, if you want to listen to that, very much mimic a, a style of vocal that I like to incorporate into my work as well, because it's just it's very syrupy. But if you do it in the right way and you miss out the right bits and include the right bits, it can be really, really nice, especially for someone like me who. Still, even to this day, I do a lot of singing, but I still don't consider myself to be like a, a lead singer or a vocalist. I just love to sing, so I sing. Um, 
And so I treat it in a bit of a different way, whereas I'd call myself a guitarist and a harmonica player, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself a singer, but I do love singing, so... Mm. No, I, I, I think you, I think you undersell yourself. You know? <laughs> when, but, but when I listen to your music, I, I can see those influences. You know, when you talk about people like John Mayer, Dave Matthews, you've got those songs that are just stripped back with a guitar and you singing, and it is something heartfelt. And then you have got others where it's much more electronic and much more harmonised and much more um, developed in that way. So it's intriguing when you talk about the influences because I can almost see it coming into your music when you talk, which is fascinating. You you mentioned obviously that that you had the time at Osset when you worked as the music technician and you were you were gigging at the time because I remember the gigs used to run at the Hop in Wakefield. Yeah. I went to a couple and may have marred one or two when I when I got on the stage. Oh, no, it was the open mic night. It was wonderful. I remember it was, it was really good fun. I used to enjoy that a lot. And yeah, uh, uh, I think I brought, in fact I brought I did I brought my now wife to one of them um, and yes. sang one of the songs that I wrote for her. I remember. I remember it well. There you go. And you said then, obviously, after your time there, that things start to go um, a little bit sideways for you. If, if you take me on a little bit of that journey, if you would, and, and obviously whatever you feel comfortable sharing, um, how did you use music through that time as a, as a coping mechanism? Um, OK, well, we'll get to that bit in a second, because the, the main sort of bulk of it was learning that I needed to do that in the first place. So essentially, it's a bit like when, when something big happens, it takes a long time to digest it. And, and essentially, you feel very lost for a sort of question mark amount of time. So what ended up happening was, at the time, I was um, called, apparently anyway, I, I heard a rumour that I was looked at as somebody called a two percenter, which means the sort of person that is already there when other people arrive at work and cheers other people up when they walk through the door, apparently, um, which I'm very, very honoured to have been even thought of in that bracket. Um, so I was already naturally a very, very positive and optimistic person. I always have done. And I've used my sense of humour along with that as well. Um, but eventually, after I worked there for seven years, and just in that last year, what ended up happening was I was poorly and hadn't really realised it. And essentially, because I was that 2% of mentality, I didn't listen to my body. And I worked for six months being extremely poorly and not telling anybody. And what happened was um, I, was, I suddenly was getting really, really tired for reasons that I, sh I shouldn't have done. Um, my body was essentially going into being chronically fatigued. But I also... This is going to be a little bit more, so I'll, I'll be as little as graphic as I can to explain the situation, uh, to be polite. But um, essentially, I started realising that blood was appearing in certain places that it shouldn't have been. Um, and I realised that I was in a lot of pain, especially down below, when I was doing lots and lots of high octane work because i'm sure you can remember i was always racing around not like a headless chicken but i was always spinning lots of plates at the same time which in some ways helped because it allowed to distract me from the pain i was constantly in but then one day i was always going to just hit a wall and the second i did i just broke down um my colleagues at work just said you know go go up to the main building and, and speak to someone uh, which I did, and I, I spoke to the wonderful HR department um, and just admitted everything to them. And they just put everything that I needed in place to go, right, you go home, go and ring the people you need to ring, and we will pick up the fallout afterwards. So uh, I knew, thankfully, 
that I had the support of a wonderful place of work. And I'm still massively strong friends with loads of people uh, like Mrs. Jackson and people like that who, who really were. We're talking knights in shining armour, maidens of shining armour, if you will. They were absolutely incredible uh, and really looked after my best interests. So I went and saw a doctor and got referred to a gastroenterologist and it started to paint the picture that I had something called Crohn's disease and that I'd had it for a while. And because I hadn't put my hand up earlier, and this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about this, um, was that I'd kind of done more damage by not putting my hand up and letting things just progress because I was too proud and too, I, I didn't really want to face up to it. I just thought, oh, it'll magic itself away. You know, if I just ignore it, it'll be fine, which obviously a lot of people go through that. But it's, it absolutely stopped me and I ended up having to have, in the first place, I had an, uh, basically an operation, which was to remove a part of my colon uh, where there was loads of growth that happened. I mean, Crohn's is a really weird disease. It does lots of different things to lots of different people. So it's a, I describe it as a recipe uh, illness. So for somebody else, you might have a list of 10 things and only two of them collide next to somebody else who's got the same disease so it's it's all about your diet it's all about your lifestyle and what you do and back then I remember it I used to go out for a, a cigarette every uh, dinner time and not think very much of it but eventually it was I was 10 stone at the time I was really like I didn't realize at the time I was actually scarily thin and I actually didn't sort of see myself as, as that that was a health concern but one of the things about Crohn's is weight loss and I really hadn't sort of picked up on that. So I thought, okay, but mix that with a six foot one person who's a very, very thin build and is a smoker. And suddenly you've got a lot of different things happening at the same time that are going to cause problems. Now that's not a cause of Crohn's. Nobody knows what causes Crohn's disease, but what they do say is that certain um, circumstances perpetuate it and allow it to stick around for longer and make it behave in different ways and I wasn't aware of all that so I had to go through the due process which was have the operation um, suddenly try lots of different medications because this is essentially what Crohn's disease does. Crohn's disease is when your immune system attacks your intestines so it thinks it's um, it needs attacking so it's if you've got a strong immune system then the worse the Crohn's can be because it's got more power to do it. And that means you get inflammation in and around your colon or your, the bit that joins your colon to the rest of your, uh, your digestion system. So it's a place called the ileum, it tends to happen a lot. Uh, and you get um, sort of inflammation in different sections and depending where the inflammation is, that can give you a different set of symptoms. So it's a really intricate thing to, to sort of A, get into your brain, and then B, comprehend and learn how to live alongside it. So now, believe it or not, I'm not, not really, if I do, I suffer. And I need to avoid eating things like tomato skins, things that have got pips in. So if I make fajitas, I have to peel my peppers and make sure not one of the seeds goes into it and things like that, because I can eat it and it'll go through my system okay, but it, I can't digest them in the same way that someone without Crohn's can. And I really struggle to get the, the nutrients out of it that I should. And it's just, it really backs the system up. And then essentially it's a bit like a domino effect with how you feel. Um, you just, you feel really, really low. Um, 
and then you can have lots of problems with diarrhea and things like that being a lot. Uh, tiredness is just the, the first one of those symptoms and you can essentially spend some energy and then need to be in bed for a, couple, a good couple of days to think that you feel anything remotely like human again. It's a really big deal when it's in the middle of a flare. So, so I, I went through that for, for a year. I jumped onto lots of steroids. Uh, in fact, I was on steroids for 18 months. So suddenly my weight started to balloon because you retain water. And then there's another side effect of taking uh, 18 months of steroids, and that is it also softens your teeth. It makes your teeth really, really weak um, to the point where, and I had bad teeth anyway because I was a smoker and drank a lot of coffee with a lot of sugar in, and it just made them absolutely go horrific, and they went very south. And uh, and then, yeah, just massively decayed, and then I, I was struggling to, to eat. So every time I was having a meal, I had to eat carbs because they were easier to digest, so white food, so lots of potatoes, lots of rice and pasta, but if I made some chips, for example, I'd have to cut the ends off the chips because they were too sharp for my teeth to cope with. And when you live in that reality day by day by day and one chip can shatter a tooth in two, it's, you're then in a perpetual amount of fear and anxiety. And Crohn's feeds off that anxiety. So for, for phase one of describing what the start of that journey was, that was a, a really big deal that, that was an atom bomb going off in my world and the lovely people at Osset essentially let me go through that process for a year and then eventually I went onto a new um, medication which was uh, like an injection pen so you had to put it on your thigh press a, a button that stabs you in the leg which I've got to be honest isn't the most natural thing to force yourself to do <laughs> it's not a very nice thing um, and I found that eventually I was that nervous about doing it that I'd pull it out a little bit too quick and some of the medicine would go on the, on the floor. And I went back to the people, it was Bradford Royal Infirmary that looked after me with my Crohn's. And I once told them, oh, uh, I had an accident with the last one and it went on the floor. And she's, my specialist said, um, okay, well, we need to find a way of keeping that medicine in you. But what you need to realise is that that bit of medicine that went on the floor is, is worth 500 pounds. <laughs> so I was absolutely mortified. I know. So like, right. Okay. So I then moved across to see my mum every 14 days and she would do it. And that was better. Uh, but then after a year, I, I, the stress of going through that injection was also perpetuating the Crohn's to stick around. So I had to say, look, no offense, but I just need to, can I just take some tablets? <laughs> and I've been on those tablets ever since, but that wobble moving from the injections onto the tablets was when I got poorly again after working at Osset again for three months. And I, I'd had that much time off that nobody, I mean, they were over generous. So I, I had to um, rethink my entire plan and go, right, now we need to start thinking about what my reality is, how I can think about moving forward and what's, what's my future going to hold where it's realistic and I can work alongside what's going on because it takes a long time for you to realise, okay, this isn't going to go away. I just need to manage it and live alongside it. And once that sinks in, you have to reassess everything. So suddenly music then went, hello, I'm going to come to your rescue. And, and it finally did. I'm just going to have a little swig of coffee and have a, <laughs> just catch my breath for a second. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. 
so that that was the the main sort of segment of the the crown's journey and then after that happened i then went through some serious things with my teeth uh, which was really um, quite difficult as well so i was struggling to eat very well and the weight was fluctuating already by that point um but after i'd left Osset, i then started to try and do some gigs and, and get some momentum and i i did a, an album launch for my previous album the last one i released uh called Are You Sitting Comfortably? And at that point, I was still hopeful that I might be able to spread my wings a bit and at least get some momentum um, and at least pick and choose, be my own boss, pick and choose when I could work and that kind of thing. Um, but then, essentially, the, the next phase of, of the health problem really, really, really kicked in because I was struggling with the anxiety. I was smoking more, and that made the other problem that was about to happen suddenly take off. So... As if that wasn't bad enough, it then got serious. And what happened was, um, we're now talking, so five and a half years ago, I woke up and my left lung had collapsed in my sleep. So it felt like someone was sat on my chest and I didn't know if it was a heart attack or anything. It, it was a, like, a, like someone had grabbed my shoulder and was squeezing as hard as they possibly could. Um, I went to hospital. Um, well, I went to the doctor first and they, they raced me to hospital because they said, um, you're in big trouble. Um, so I got up there and they put a, a tube into my the top of my, uh, just under my collarbone on my left side. And they released 1.8 litres of air that was not in my lung that was supposed to be in my lung. And they x-rayed me and told me that I have inhumanly large lungs. So... They, they couldn't fit on the on, on the x-ray machine because they had to use a portable one and they put it behind me and they had to take two photos because it wasn't on there properly. Um, but they got rid of this air by essentially puncturing my chest without any anaesthetic or anything. And I essentially, I my body went into a crab uh, and they hit a ball of nerves. And I thought that was the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. And at the same time, I had all these flashes of all the cigarettes I'd ever smoked and thought, this is horrendous. What on earth have I done to myself? And, and instantly felt guilty for having put myself in that position. And they explained it's, it wasn't just the smoking, it's your build as well. It's, it's kind of like a perfect marriage, really. But, uh, but it can end up in this situation where you start essentially getting this problem. And so the, the x-ray revealed that I had lung disease at the top of both of my lungs. Um, so it, it looks like uh, like two crescent moons that are like really black in, in shape and colour. Um, and essentially, the, it actually was that the right side was worse than the left, but the left one had just happened to be the one that collapsed. So I healed after that, um, after the air had come out, and they said, just, you need to take it steady and, and really think about your life choices, wink, wink. And I thought, right, okay. But I foolishly carry on smoking because the Crohn's was still a thing and essentially I was really uh, painting myself into a corner and thought oh it's it's not happened again and the longer it didn't happen for the more I thought my body was recovering and getting stronger and then exactly a, a year later um, it happened again only this time it was a much bigger deal uh, they took me to one side and said look now that it's happened twice it's revealed that there's something bigger going on and that it's actually going to keep on happening. What we have to do is glue your left lung to your chest lining. 
So th this is where things are going to get a bit hard to call. So I apologise in advance, but this is, I'm just telling you the facts of what happened. <laughs> so they glued, they put me in for an operation where they glued, uh, it's called a, it's a vasculectomy and talcopleurodesis. So they put a camera through your back to see what's going on and essentially um, put some talcum powder solution into your chest cavity, which irritates and make inflames all of the uh, material that surrounds your lungs so that, and the lung wall, so that the lung essentially realizes that it's allowed to glue itself to the chest wall instead of having like normal people have like a, an amount of give between their lung and their chest wall. So, so when it does collapse, there's actually a hole that, that's created. Now, my left lung can't really collapse. There's like a 5% chance that it could ever collapse because it's literally fused to it. But there's a, there's a reason why it's not fused to it in the first place. And that is when I breathe cold air in, hot physics, hot meets cold, cold uh, hot contracts. And so it feels like someone's pulling my lung <laughs> with a pair of hands inside my chest when I breathe in cold air. It's a really unusual uh, thing to feel. However, I digress slightly. So, so I went through this operation uh, at St. James's, uh, which is one of the most wonderful places in the entire universe. And I owe them my life uh, because what happened was the, the lung was supposed to glue pretty quickly. There was uh, a drain going in through my chest as well. So I had this pipe coming out um, that sort of, watching how much air was going in, in where and things like that, which was one of the most, I hated that thing. It was the most uncomfortable. It, it was it, essentially, it was like someone sticking you with a knife and then just holding it there. It was that uncomfortable. It was really, really psychologically hard to cope with that. And then I realized uh, after a few days, they, they said to me, oh, we need to send you for a, an X-ray just to see that everything's done what it's supposed to do. Um, can you get yourself down to, to ward? I forget the ward it was, but it was seven wards away. And I said, um, I'm afraid I can't. And they said, uh, well, okay, well, that does mean getting a porter and getting your wheelchair. Are you, are you sure you can't just walk down there? And they were genuinely confused. And I said, um, no, I'm, I'm afraid it, something's happened. I, 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 I can, I'm in a lot of pain and I don't know what's happening. So they went off and came back eventually. I mean, this is at a time when they were really struggling uh, for an, a, an amount of staff. And they said, look, we, we really need you to, to get yourself down there because we, we won't be able to get a porter for another four hours. And if you get to x-ray now, you'll be, able, you'll be home in you know, another two hours. So they tried to give me that incentive. So I shuffled down to the x-ray department and they x-rayed me and they found that the gluing had failed and my lung had collapsed again, which was why I was in so much pain. And it had happened at the same time they'd uh, taken the drain out. So that had essentially knocked it. So I went back to my room. I had a packed bag on my bed thinking I was about to go home. I'd been in for in the hospital for um, four days. It was supposed to be three and I was already a day late because my lungs were so weak. And it turns out that this amazing surgeon called Miriam, uh, from uh, I think she was Italian, she was amazing. She came and uh, sort of knelt down next to me in this wheelchair and said, look, I'm really sorry, but I've got to readjust your pain threshold. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you, in, in your mind, you've just gone through the worst pain that you've ever experienced. 
and I now need you to put that bar back up again because we need to redo the operation. We need to reinflate the lung and make it fuse again. And so I had to go through it twice. And because of that, the, that amount of pain in such a short amount of time meant that I, uh, I got through the night, but the following day I went into shock. And, the, and that's the thing that causes you the biggest panic. So, so I was lying on a bed. Uh, I'd gone into shock. Um, I will explain what it felt like just because it might put anybody that does smoke who's thinking about possibly giving up smoking, it might give them some incentive. Um, basically, I had what I would describe as approximately one centimetre's worth of breath. What that means is this. You, if you take a deep breath, you could kind of describe it like a, a length, like a metre stick. And so when I can breathe in now and go... Like that, that's a long breath. My breath was this. I literally couldn't breathe deeper than that because deeper than that meant it was like inflating my lung onto sharpened knives and that I could feel every single aspect of it. So and because of that pain, I went into shock. My body started shutting down. And if it wasn't for our mutual friend, uh, Mrs. Thompson and my sister who went to, they ran into the hospital, which was 6 p.m. at night, so it was the change of the shift. Uh, and they grabbed um, a lovely, amazing surgeon. They, they really hit all the stops and, and got someone there as fast as they could. And as soon as he walked in, uh, he got on the phone and said, right, we need to uh, get morphine into this guy's arm straight away. Um, he's in big trouble. And if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't be sat here talking to today. So it's, it's as frank and as simple as that. So... And that was all because of my build and because I'd smoked too much and thought I was invincible. Um, I, I'm in no doubt whatsoever. After everything that happened afterwards with talking to the surgeons and then explaining my situation to me, which I'll explain in a moment, that that is the reality of my situation. If I hadn't have smoked, I wouldn't have gone through that pain and experience. So um, the, the night before... Um, Sorry, two nights. No, the night before the operation, I think I tried to have my last cigarette and I couldn't really smoke it properly anyway because it I'd, essentially I'd had a collapsed lung for six weeks whilst I was waiting for the operation. So that's not a, that's not a great situation to be in anyway. Um, but after the operation, I woke up and I've never smoked ever since. And that was four and a half years ago. And not only that, but I've also never had a craving either. Not once. It turned from what I thought was my best friend into my absolute worst enemy. And if someone's walking across the road um, a good, like, 80 yards away, I can, I can smell smoke like a smoke detector. It is ridiculous. Um, but I then went home once it had fused, and thankfully it did, and they had to put the drain back in, and the, the surgeon very tactfully lied to me and said, no, it'll be going through a fresh hole because the idea of it going back into the same hole that had just been made was just too much for my brain to cope with as well. So she tactfully lied, which was quite cool, I've got to admit. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good lady. Um, so she, because of her doing that, I was able to be saved uh, because it saved them time and got them to, to save my life. So I then went home and I had to stay at home with this drain in me just in case it failed again. Um, for the drain was with me for another four weeks um, and like my mum had had to come to my house and make it like a hospital in here 
Um, so there was no cigarettes anywhere. All the ashtrays had been thrown in the bin and everything and it was just disinfected the place. And then when I went back for what I consider my debriefing, um, basically it was the head surgeon. It's, it's not even a doctor. It's somebody above a doctor called a mister. It's the, the head lung surgeon at St. James's, Mr. Chowdhury. Uh, and he sat me down with my auntie at my side and explained to me what my reality is now. And this is still as it is because it will never improve. My, my lung disease is chronic. So what that means is it will stay exactly as it was. So as long as I don't ever smoke again, it will just stay at the same point it used to be. Um, as in, that's now the new state of them. So what he said was several things. One is, if he couldn't see that I, at the time, I was 39, I'm 43 now. Um, at 39 years old, I had the lungs of a 60-year-old man. So all that smoking had aged my lungs and made them like, like a helium balloon that sort of sagged. So they had all those like little sort of ripples on the side. Um, I'm also, because the right lung is worse than the left one, the right lung is the one that's likely to collapse. So that is a, a really high likelihood of collapsing. And the left one is, because of the operation, really low risk of collapsing. What it means is I'm not allowed to fly ever again. It means the change in air pressure might be strong enough to make the right lung collapse. Because my left lung collapsed in my sleep, when I don't think I'm that active when I'm asleep, <laughs> I'm pretty inert. So if your lung can collapse when you're inert, so basically if I now go for a walk, if it rains, I stop and I, I have to either call for a lift or go home by the safest route possible. Because if I fall down, this is all from my surgeon, um, then the impact could make the right lung collapse. If I sneeze, the force of a sneeze might be enough to make my right lung collapse. And all of these factors are something that hurts my brain to live with every day, but it's been vigilant about them that has kept me alive and why I'm still here being able to talk to you today. So I'm not really good with colds. So if a friend of mine has a cold, they have to tell me and I have to go, well, in that case, I won't come and see you. We'll leave it for another day. Um, if it gets cold, I'm not allowed to, to go out because if it's icy, I might slip. I'm not allowed to go and look after my mum's dog because he's a big dog and he might just jump up and hit my chest and that might be the time. Now, the reason why that's such a problem is because of the last thing you told me, which is this. If my right lung collapses... They, they won't have a choice. They will have to do the same operation as they did to the left. If they ever have to do that, I'm more likely to die than live. So that's as stark as it is. And, and to be honest, you don't really have enough conversation with even your closest friends to get to that part of the understanding of it. So because I know it's, it stayed the same, and I've had like scar tissue creep up and things like that. And, and every time I feel something either from scar tissue from my left lung or a, like a problem with my right, I'm absolutely terrified. And, and f friends and family are like, do you not think you're over worrying? Well, well no. <laughs> when, when you know the reality and you completely comprehend it, it really is something that is a big deal. So once all that sort of transpired and I, I realised that my, my new reality is okay, I now need to treat every day as, as a, a bit of a, a miracle. And so every 
cup of coffee I have without falling over is, yay, every bacon sandwich I managed to make without, or, or every shower I have without falling over in the bath. Yay! So it actually perpetuates a state of being really super optimistic because if I'm here tomorrow, then I'm win-win. That's brilliant. So, but there's a massive amount of strength that has to come from somewhere because you don't really have a choice. And a lot of people have said to me in my past, that, that takes a lot of courage to, to go through that. But I, when you don't have a choice, I'm not sure I would call it courage. What, all you have to do is go, I've, thankfully, I've just got a good brain because your brain has to digest it all, regurgitate it in such a way where you go, okay, I accept that that's bad, but how can I look at tomorrow as being good then? And that's all that matters. So all the stuff I've just explained to you is really, really horrible. And it, I, I wish it hadn't happened. It's a massive regret. I wish I'd never picked up a cigarette ever. And it's changed my life. But I now appreciate life in a different way. I'm a completely different person to who I was four and a half years ago. Um, and then once I realized that, I, I had two years where I couldn't sing properly because when they put the tube down my throat for the operation, it damaged my vocal cords. So I, even now, that's only about 80 or 90% fixed. So every now and again, I'll sing a note and it splits in two. And I'm like, ah. Oh. So, I, I, so I'm kind of enjoying singing to such a way, but I have to record myself. And then if I have a bad take, it's because I've gone, ah. And it just, it does this little, little trough thing. Um, but I'll endeavour and I keep going, well, okay, well, I'll just get up a bit earlier tomorrow, have a rest and see if it works tomorrow. And invariably it sometimes does, but what it means is, I just have to take each day at a time. If I feel well, I'll say yes to stuff. And I try to say yes to most things. Um, but most of my friends and family, or even if I've organised like a rare gig, then th I organise it having said, look, I've been through a lot. I've got a lot of problems. And if I need to cancel last minute, I really hope you can understand that. And most people will just go, of course, that's not a problem in the slightest. So it enables me and allows me to have the opportunity to at least say yes to stuff and at least try to get some kind of meaningful existence because, well, the, the other option is not a very pleasant one. So you, you've got to get busy living, haven't you? And that's just the attitude you've kind of got to have. But it's an attitude that perpetuates optimism and a sense of humour. I'll tell you what, I've had to have a sense of humour through it all. <laughs> so I know that was a big chunk of information to deliver at the same time, but that, that essentially is is a really big journey that, that's, because of that journey, made me look at music in a, a life-changing way, an absolutely life-changing way. Because when I was sat in, a, in the hospital bed thinking, will I ever be able to sing again? Will I ever be able to play harmonica again? One of the things I love more than anything in the universe, it looked like I wouldn't be able to. And the fact that I am now, I just will never, ever take for granted ever again. So anytime I sing, anytime I play harmonica and I don't pass away <laughs> because of it uh, is a, a massive victory. I'll tell you what, you should have seen my friend's faces the first time I played a harmonica in public after that operation. <laughs> they were, <laughs> bless them, they were absolutely mortified. Just like hands over speed dial for an ambulance. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, it's, it's living a bit of a blues lifestyle, but in some ways that kind of suits me. So I've, I've essentially moved into a position where I now just, I, I have breaks from it because I need to for the, the amount of 
fatigue that just goes with it because I now get fatigue from my Crohn's, which happens to be quite low at the moment, but I also get fatigue from going for a, a long walk and my lungs having to, I'm dealing with a 60 year old pair of lungs that are doing the work of somebody who's a lot younger, trying to say, come on, be younger. <laughs> so it's, it, it's a little bit tricky. It is a little bit tricky, but I keep trying and that's all you can do. So I, I've now got to a position where I'm recording pretty regularly and I go through phases and I try to, uh, to keep on writing songs. And every time I get up every day and I think, right, is today a walking day? Is it a day where I go into a, I also play um, a computer game and I have a, compu- a community of friends in a, a Discord and they, they've been a godsend as well, to be honest. So it really is uh, about having every, something to look forward to every day, even if that thing to look forward to is a tiny, tiny thing. Swing of coffee time. <laughs> Oh, I'll tell you what, I've, I've just I've just sat and listened and, and I, it's humbling, you know, and, and it's humbling for so many people who would listen to that and then think, how have I managed to find something to complain about in the last 12 months? And, and you know what, life, life has been tough for a lot of people. Life has been difficult. And no doubt people have gone through challenges, mental, emotional, physical, financial, with employment, uh, bereavement, you name it. But you know, sometimes you, you watch the news and you see or hear about the people that don't take this thing seriously. And I know how you feel about those people. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. you, don't, you don't hold any punches when you... When you... <laughs> but it, but, it, but it, now that people can understand where that's coming from, yeah. it has so much more gravity to it. And, and you know, you, you already have existed with that attitude of these are the risks, I have to mitigate the risks, or these could be the consequences. And, and the rest of us haven't got that yet. The rest of us haven't caught up. So, you know, I, I hope that on one level, people will, will respect your journey, but I hope on another level, they'll then look at their own lives at the existing situation and then be able to say, these are the risks. This is what I have to mitigate or the consequence could be serious for me or for somebody else. Yes. And that level of social responsibility, I think is something that we as a society just haven't got yet. Absolutely right. And, and I, to be honest, I find that it's, it's more. It's not so much about people deliberately deciding, oh, I'm not going to take something seriously. I don't think it's a conscious decision. I just think that when people go through um, a, quite a natural progression of, of bad news, so the news is perpetuating this negativity and it has done for a long time, people that are you know, just getting on with their normal lives get sort of ground down with that. And, and it's really, really easy to go, oh, well, okay, I'm, I'm just fed up of that now. And that in context is absolutely perfectly acceptable. You can't help how you feel about things. The trick to it is to be able to have the last bit of the journey that's the most important part glued on at the end, which is once you go through that, that period of whether it's apathy or whether it's just frustration or whatever, that you finish that self-conversation with yourself and go, yes, but... How many other people are in a worse position than me? And for me, I, I'm not the person that's at the, the, the end of the line going, it's me. I'm the person who's got it worse because there's millions of people worse off than me. And it's me being aware of that at the end of my self-conversations with coping with hardship that makes me go, well, do you know what? I'm going to make an effort and wake up tomorrow because 
there are so many nurses and doctors and policemen and firemen and teachers slogging their guts out, having their, their usual days bent around something that is an uncomfortable shape to cope with. Um, and their coping mechanism is when they've got, you know, scars and marks on their face and they're absolutely exhausted beyond belief, that they've got to have that self-conversation with themselves. And then they realise yeah, but I just said goodbye to Mr. Robinson, who was, he made me laugh in that last shift and he was brilliant. And now his family have just got an atom bomb sized hole in their life. And so it's, the word is empathy. And it's, it's about remembering about other people at the end of the conversation, because being frustrated is perfectly acceptable. Being fed up of it is perfectly acceptable. It's human. The, the, the journey is that, you don't just stay on the plateau of that and just stay there and go, oh, well, I'm just going to bury my, that's burying your head in the sand and not being socially responsible. It's about thinking, okay, get rid of that frustration, do something about it, shout. I, the times I type my frustrations into a Microsoft Word document and then don't post them. <laughs> it, but it, it's about objectifying it. If you can do that, just at least have said it, whether it's, verbally or into a, a blog or something like that you don't actually have to publicate uh, publicize it to make it have the effect of doing a good job and essentially music when that's a form of expression and a, a way to turn something so negative into something so positive it's just a supercharged version of that same process which is why it has been an utter savior of mine to absolutely just go right if i can get to the end of this particular project it's it's not about stopping me from being bored it's about the help it actually gives me to objectify my thoughts put them into a, a packageable thing get it into the big wide world and go right it now has gone from being in my brain it's come out of my fingers out of my mouth and it's it's the completion of an idea with the realization of an idea and the satisfaction that gives you when you've put it out there and gone right real world there you go. I've done something. Now, it actually doesn't matter if a single other person out in the real world even listens to it. That's not what, what it is. It's about the big check mark in your brain that says, I got the idea from idea to product, essentially. And once you've done that process, it's exactly in the same ballpark of going to a gym and running 10 kilometers on a treadmill. It's just a creative outlet of doing that it really really is and it's it but it's just it's a bit like um doing that it's a bit like having uh, 20 protein shakes but when you do it with music it's a bit like having a sunday roast and then choosing what dessert you want so it's because it, there's just a little bit you can go a bit more sideways on it so it really is a wonderful thing and i i a wouldn't be the same person that i am now uh, without music and and b i just would not be um, coping the way that I am and, and I struggle I, I have good days and bad days but my bad days are better than they would be um, had I not chosen to do music and, and use that as a, as a really big outlet so yeah it's a, it's a hard hard situation but it's about thinking outside your own bubble and thinking how hard is it for everybody else? And so for you to get in touch with me and, and reach out, is, that is a massive, massive help. It really is. Because I'm finding a lot of people are misinterpreting 
this is something I wanted to make sure I got said today, is uh, when you're sort of giving your friends clues and your family clues that you're struggling a little bit, and you say, I'm kind of a, a little bit a bit lonely, it's, it's almost, it's like a, a, an elephant in the room. It's like you're not allowed to say that because it's socially awkward. But the reaction is people tend to, and this isn't picking on anybody, this is just being truthful. A lot of people misinterpret that as being bored. And they'll say, oh, do, do you want to, I'll tell you what, why don't you work on this project and do that? Well, actually, I've got loads of stuff I can do. <laughs> you know, I've got back into drawing, and uh, like with a stylus on an iPad and things like that. I've got computer games that I play and loads of music to write. I've got about 25% uh, of the album left to sort of finish up. So I've got loads of stuff to do but there is no substitution for a hug. There just is a, the cure for loneliness. It's a hug. That's just it. There's, yeah. no, there's no substitute for it. So distracting yourself from it is just not, I mean, I, I can understand the natural process of thinking that way, but it's not the fix. The fix is for everybody to team up and get rid of the virus as fast as we can so that we can all hug each other without having to think, oh, but am I allowed? Mm. And all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's about getting rid of it as fast as we can. So it's it's just, yeah, tricky time. No, I, I agree with so much of what you've said. And, and I, I've, I feel that as well, because I, like you, I've got a lot of things I can work on. I've got videos I can make and, and online courses I want to build and, music I'd love to write even though I'm probably not half as good as some out there <laughs> you get to that point where you think I've got all these projects but then it's it's not about projects it's about people and, and when you're at the end of your life you're not going to worry about how many projects you did or didn't do you're going to worry about how many people you had relationships or didn't have relationships with and, and I think part of this podcast you know when I first set it up 18 months ago the first six episodes were just me having a chat into a microphone about some stuff I'd learned about public speaking because that's what okay. I do for most of my life. But over the last lockdown and over these succeeding months, as, as I've interviewed more and more people, I've come to realise it's just an opportunity to hear stories, to talk to people, to have people talk to me and to get the mutual benefit of having a really honest, open, down-to-earth, frank conversation. Yeah. And and that's what this has been, and that's why it's been such a such a joy. Now you've talked about a, an end product, and and there's a little treat before the end because I know that you have recently written a song, and we're going to feature it. We're going to let people listen to it. But would you introduce that for us and explain a bit more about it? I certainly will. Um, so I decided to to give your lovely self a world exclusive. It is the first time it's been here heard by uh, by anybody really. Um, it's a song called Pinstripe Suit, and I, I wrote it right in the, the really difficult bit where I knew I couldn't go out, I couldn't see my friends, and this is pre-pandemic, this was just from being so poorly. Um, and I was really sort of looking forward and daydreaming about the simple things in life, about looking forward to going out with your friends on a weekend, getting having an excuse to get dressed up. You remember when we used to get dressed up? So exactly. So I thought, well, I'm going to write this song, but it's the one song on the album that I would consider to be a, a blues song um, because there's a bit of, of history there with um, essentially a, a sort of American feel to it where the pinstripe suit is, is quite a visual sort of epicenter of focus um, for people in the deep south in America. So I thought, well, okay. 
I can I can work with that going with my background. So I, I focused on the pinstripe suit as as the kind of idyllic thing to, to aim for. As when you put your pinstripe suit on, it, it symbolises going out at the weekend and having something to get dressed up for. But also the alter ego thing. It's it's kind of expressing about when you put your suit on. It's your it's your suit of armour. It's when you're at your sharpest, when you're at your funniest when you, you put on your smile and you go and reveal yourself to the world in the state that you kind of want yourself to be re revealed in. Um, so the, the song's got lots of undertones about that, but fundamentally it's, um, it's a really nice way to express looking forward to going back out into the big wide world and going out with your friends. So it's, it's lighthearted with deeper undertones. And so it's... Uh, how honoured we are to have that global exclusive. I know, right? <laughs> insert this song into a podcast. Oh, man. I never would have dreamed of this 18 months ago. So we'll let people have the chance to listen to it. And then we'll, uh, we'll have a brief chat about it afterwards. Working and I hope that my girl's on time 
seek with the neon light. It's the no-show blues, so I grab tequila at sunrise. But Mama knows I gotta go and stick with the plan. Cause my daddy says I gotta stay and be a bad man. My legs are trying to run just as fast as they can. And I get to wear my pinstripes soon. I get to wear my pinstripes soon. I wear my pinstripes soon. Get to wear my pinstripes So in, in bringing this towards a, a conclusion then, Ryan, what, what, what advice would you give to people? If you were to take everything you've learned, everything you've experienced over the last several years, what, what advice would you leave with people about how to live life or how to treat each day they get given? Um, I honestly have gone through such a, a unique little experience that the, the only things that I've d- decided that matter to me anyway, and I would imagine as the same things that should only really matter to everybody else, is the most important thing is like in life is your family and your friends. Money means nothing at all. Uh, it's about happiness. It's about not ever taking anything for granted. So every single cup of coffee that you make, every single bacon sandwich that you have is an absolute blessing. And I don't just enjoy those things. I revel in them and celebrate them at the same time. And I think I'm so, so happy that I can have this now. And it's, it's all about having sense of humour, it's about laughing as much as you can. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm experiencing some serious support from, from that gaming community I, I mentioned a few minutes ago. And in that, it gives me an opportunity to be um, like a, a computer avatar version of myself. And the people in there know me as the guy that makes all of the puns. So I really do go for it. And... and I often say a pun in the middle of a crowded chat room of people on microphones. And if you get a laugh, then you win. And if you get an awful sigh, then you win. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the, the act of going through laughing and intentionally thinking, I'm going to exist every day with a joke in my back pocket, then actually that has made everything so much easier to cope with on a daily basis so i would say it's about laughing it's about not taking things too seriously and mixing that with uh thinking about others so what i would finish with is this at the moment um my mum is really struggling with some health and i decided a long time ago when uh, she was first diagnosed with cancer uh, just over 18 months ago um, she's got cancer in four places. 
So I made a conscious decision in my new, uh, I actually have a, uh, my friend Kat, I, went, I describe it as Ryan Mark III. So it, it and, and psychologically it does make a difference. Um, every time I speak to my mum, every single time before the end of the conversation, I will make her laugh and I will not end the conversation until I have done. And having that, and it, it's an absolute uh, rock solid thing. I never, ever go back on it. I will not let one conversation sneak through without making a laugh. And that typifies everything that I'm about, which is laugh, take every day as an absolute blessing that, that we're here for whatever re reason or background. Because, I mean, you probably understand I'm an atheist, but I'm still a very open-minded person who loves that people believe what they want to believe. Um, so my mum laughing and me thinking about someone else in that conversation, regardless of how I feel, typifies what I'm all about, which is think about everybody else. And if you can make someone laugh, then you're doing all right. That's a really good day. So think about everybody else and magically yourself just gets more rounded and more enriched uh, and makes you able to cope with things infinitely better. Uplifting mood of mine Caring for the duty Of unrelenting beauty For time Out of silhouettes Come the best friends yet And keeping me in sanity Every time a struggling line, forgive me for leaning Under the ground I'm knuckling down, correct me for dreaming I get to the curb and under reward, decision signs looming But I will always follow my heart And I remember to thank you for Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. I hope that what you've learned in today's episode will help you become a more effective communicator as you put it into practice. You can visit my website, simonspeaks.co.uk for more information, tips, articles and resources or to speak to me about working with me as a coach. I'm also available on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Simon Speaks I'm on LinkedIn and I also have a YouTube channel. Just search for Simon Speaks. Thanks again for tuning in today and I look forward to seeing you again next time.